Ralph back and Doug back and everybody else from, from Pennsylvania back this week. <coughs> Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. As we prayed earlier, we thank you for this gift that you have given to us that we can be in your house. We can have this worship service. We can gather together as your family. There's something more powerful about being together as the body of Christ. And it's the bond of the Holy Spirit that ties us all together. We come from all walks of life, all kinds of different backgrounds, and you have all sorts of different plans for each and every one of us. But Lord, you, all, all, all of those roads have led right here. You've brought us together once more in your house to sing your praises, to pray, to read your word, and to hear from your word. So Lord, we, I pray that you bless this time that we have together, that you would, again, remove anything from our minds or hearts that's distracting us, that your seeds of truth may be buried deep within us, and in direct connection to what we're talking about today, bear real fruit in our lives. And I pray all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. There are a bunch of articles published not too long ago that chronicled some people who invented things that are household names and household items now, but that either took a long time to be worth anything to their inventors or ended up not making their inventors anything, not making them any money. The first invention is this. Anybody recognize that at all? <laughs> this is the original computer mouse. All the way back in 1967, the very first, good thing we still don't use what that looks like now, right? That's the first computer mouse. The man who invented this was named Doug Eng Engelbart and filed the patent for this in 1967. But unfortunately for him, the patent expired before anyone really started using it. The only money Engelbart made from his invention was $50,000 from the Xerox company's license to use it. Apple didn't have to pay anything for its use. Neither did Microsoft. And it wasn't until the late 1980s that Apple and another fledgling computer company named Microsoft made it integral to personal computer use. Engelbart died in 2013 having not received one penny in royalties from his invention because his patent expired. In 1985, a Russian computer programmer named Alexei Pajitnov invented a computer game where the user fit different shaped blocks together called Tetris. I thought some, at least one person would recognize that. All right. But even though Nintendo would start making money off of it just a few years later, it wasn't until 10 years later when Pajitnov formed his own company based on Tetris that he started receiving any royalties from this wildly popular game. It took him 10 years to start making any money off of it. And in 1971, a Japanese businessman named Daisuke Inui invented a machine that played background tracks of songs for the average person to sing along to, called the 
Karaoke machine, you got it. Anui never filed a patent for it, however, and never made a cent off of his invention. If you did the math, the karaoke machine turns 50 next year. And Anui lost out just last year, just in one year, $100 million in royalties because he never filed a patent for it. He never made a cent off of the karaoke machine. Again, in all of these examples, these inventors either had to wait a considerable amount of time before they saw a dime from the use of their inventions, or their inventions ended up not being personally worth anything to them financially. In our parable today, there's a man who owns a vineyard, and by the end of the story, the jury's still out on if this particular fig tree will end up being of any value to that owner after several years, or if it'll be of any value at all. We'll see what Jesus is getting at and how it directly impacts each of us personally. What leads up to Jesus telling this story is a pretty horrifying event, but it, pretty, it directly informs our understanding of this parable. If you haven't already turned to it, please turn to Luke chapter 13 in, in your Bibles. If you didn't bring one with you, that's perfectly fine. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to Luke chapter 13 or look it up on your favorite Bible app on your smartphone, Luke 13. And I want you to follow along with me in, in the ver first part of this chapter. I'm going to, again, summarize this. Right at the beginning, we read that some men approach Jesus and bring him a disturbing re report. At a point somewhat recent to Jesus talking about what is recorded for us in chapter 12, some men bring up a report that the Roman governor over Judea at the time, Pontius Pilate, you know, that guy, had ruthlessly killed some men from Galilee while they were making sacrifices, presumably while in Jerusalem, which was in Judea. In that way, their blood was mixed with the blood of their sacrifices. We don't know exactly what happened here, what, what led up to this. But as one biblical scholar pointed out, we know that Pilate made himself present at times when sacrifices would be made to ensure order over the people. And maybe what happened is that there was some sort of revolt, and Pilate wanted to make examples out of these specific guys. Whatever it was, Jesus answers this report with another report. Jesus then brings up an account where when a building was being constructed in a place called Siloam, it fell on 18 innocent bystanders, killing all of them. And unfortunately, sounds like a report we might hear on the news any given evening, right? A building collapsed, killing this many people. People 2,000 years ago had the same thoughts running through their heads that we do when we find out something like that happened to someone. One of those thoughts, however short it may be in our minds, is always this. One of those thoughts is always, I wonder what that person did to deserve that to happen to them. That always happens, right? No matter how brief it is in our minds, that thought always passes through our minds. I wonder if that person did something to deserve that to happen to them. It was the exact same way 2,000 years ago. People never changed. Humanity hasn't changed. As one biblical scholar pointed out, Jesus uses both of these reports to bring out an important truth about when tragedy strikes humanity. 
He doesn't defend God's goodness in a horrible event, while that is still true. He doesn't try to explain what the purpose of either one of these events might have been in God's grander plan, while there was one. What he does do is that he's very clear that those who died in both of these events were not somehow more evil than those still alive. He's very clear about that. And he's very clear about that in verse 5, especially. I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And what Jesus does point out at the, at the beginning of chapter 13 is that the presence of the possibility of tragedy is always there for humanity. The presence of the possibility of tragedy is always there for humanity. It should not surprise us. That's part of living in this broken, evil, and sinful world. We know that God has a plan. We know that his plan is perfect. And we know that there is always a purpose in that plan, whether or not we see it this side of heaven. So what Jesus is pointing out is that we have no right to shake our fists at God or blame him for horrible things or sadly what happens many times just throw our entire faith away when tragedy strikes as Jesus is clear about here the threat of tragedy is always with us it's always right behind us it's always right next to us in this dark world and rather what should be surprising for any one of us as Jesus is very clear about in verse 5 is God's grace upon us what we should be surprised in this dark and evil world is any grace that God has upon us in it in other words we should not be surprised when something heartbreaking happens to us we will suffer in this world that's part of the curse we've inherited and what we continue to perpetuate as sinful human beings. What we should be surprised by is when God has grace upon us and delivers us or protects us or hasn't called us home yet. That directly flows into how we should view our spiritual lives before most holy God. When people think that they don't need God or don't need religion or even hate God or refuse to believe he exists, the underlying foundation of that mindset is an absence of reverence for his holiness. That's what just doesn't exist, is a reverence for his holiness. They have a completely twisted view of their spiritual standing before the one who holds their eternal fate in his hands. How that comes out is a line of thinking that their morality, their personal morality, should be good enough for God, and he should just cut them, along with everyone else, a break. Why are you taking this so seriously, God? Just cut me a break. They think that God just needs to get over himself and just let everyone into heaven if they didn't do anything that they define as ridiculously super evil. That sounds very familiar in our conversations with people, doesn't it? But do you see the incredibly shaky foundation of that whole belief system? What is it based on? 
It's all based on your personal interpretation of everything, or what's socially acceptable, or what's socially unacceptable. That's what it's entirely based upon. That has morphed a lot over the past thousands of years, hasn't it? And if you sat down a serial killer and asked him if he thought he was still good enough to get into heaven, what's stopping him from believing wholeheartedly that he should? There's nothing stopping him based on that belief system. Absolutely nothing. When you really think through a whole belief system that's based on what you personally think is good enough or not good enough, what happens? It all starts to fall apart. As Jesus points out in what leads up to his parable, it all must start with God. It all must start with God. It all must start with his holiness, and therefore his standard, and therefore his grace beyond that standard. That's what our starting point must be, not our personal interpretation of what's right and wrong. He is the one who's perfect. He is our creator. And he is the one who gets to decide what's right, what's wrong, and most importantly to our discussion today, what's fair. He's the one who gets to decide that. I'm sorry. None of us have the right to decide that or shake our fist at God when we think that what's going on is not fair. As Jesus is very clear about here at the beginning of chapter 13, there's nothing stopping tragedy from happening to any one of us in this world, including our own perceived morality. That's very important. There's nothing stopping tragedy from befalling us in this broken world, including our perceived morality. All that stands between us and tragedy is the grace that God decides to have upon us. Because of that, we must be extremely grateful for the grace he decides to bestow upon us in his protection over us. We, we, we must be worshiping him and praising him for all the grace that he has upon us. Especially during this incredibly tough time of this pandemic. You know what that does? When we start everything with God and base everything on Him and what He decides is right and wrong and what He decides is fair, that answers the age-old question, why do bad things happen to good people? Jesus' words at the beginning of Luke chapter 13 answers that question. In reality, there is no such thing as good people. No matter how much we fight to believe it, We've got to completely remove that from our worldview. There is no such thing as good people. Take that and chuck it as far away from you as possible. You can't base your belief system on that because that's not real. That's not true. We've got to completely remove that. The Apostle Paul quotes the book of Psalms when he writes, No one is righteous, not even one. There's no such thing as a good person person. No one is righteous, not even one. And beyond that, Solomon writes that the human heart is deceitfully wicked. Deceitfully wicked. We're so sinful as human beings that our sinful hearts trick us into thinking we're inherently good. 
the great leveling truth that sets us all on a level playing field is this. We're all sinners. We're all sinners living in a cursed world whose only hope is God's grace upon us. Really, that age-old question should be reworded as, why does anything good happen to any one of us? That should really be the age-old question. Why does anything good happen to any one of us? What that does is that refocuses our hearts and minds squarely on where it should be. Always being grateful for any amount of grace and any amount of blessing that God has upon us in this world. And then Jesus takes that one step further. Not only is it God's grace, not our own morality, that is the determining factor in what happens to us in this world. It's only God's grace, not our own morality. That is the determining factor in what happens to us when we leave this world. Spoiler alert, that's Jesus' whole point and what follows in the story he tells next. So let's pick up in Luke chapter 13, verse 6. And he began telling this parable. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. Like I ra referenced at the very beginning of this message, there's a man who owns an orchard and has this one particular fig tree that has not produced any fruit when it should have. According to one biblical scholar, fig trees normally started bearing fruit after three years. And this guy wasn't an idiot. It wasn't like he went to the tree after a year and said, wait a second, what's going on here? He gave the tree the usual time to bear fruit, but when he came to it, there was nothing there, just leaves, nothing else there. We see this along with what normally would have happened to that tree after three years, and no fruit, verse 7. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? <laughs> Why does it even take up space? That tree was given its anticipated time to bear fruit. And when it didn't, it was fit only to be cut down and not take up any more space in that orchard and not take up any more resources that could be going to another tree that would be worth something. But instead of that happening, which was customary, it was just logical and natural, it was the next step to happen, and was what that tree deserved, the man who took care of the orchard on the owner's behalf wanted to give that tree one last chance. Verse 8. And he answered and said to him, Let her alone, sir, for this year too. Give it one more year until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But then after a year, if not, cut it down. He wants to give the tree one last chance. When this groundskeeper made his plea, though, he made it knowing that this last chance was not going to last forever. Right? He still put a time limit on that. There was still a timeline on that grace it would expire someday. It was only going to last for one more year. Now, we've already established that it's not our own inherent morality that's the basis for our entrance into heaven. 
The Bible is very, very, very clear on that. And just like in Jesus' parable, the only thing that stood in between that fruitless tree and the fire that awaited it was the grace the groundskeeper had upon it. It's the same for us. The only thing that stands in between us and the fire of condemnation that awaits us is the grace that God has upon us. That's the only thing standing in, in between that. God's grace upon both our eternal fate and any grace he has upon us in this life is all based on one event. God was very upfront with the penalty for turning our back on his established standard, which he knew was best for us anyway. And the penalty for turning our back on him that he established was death. Adam was an incredibly smart guy. He was the pinnacle of God's human creation. He understood enough about what God meant when he said death to know what that penalty was. He knew that death, whatever it was, was a breaking of the connection between him and God forever. He understood that. He was an incredibly smart guy. When his earthly life was done, that death then extended for his soul through the rest of eternity. Adam got that. He wasn't a dummy. He understood that, and yet he, broke, he still broke God's standard to throw not only him and his wife, but the entirety of humanity under the bus. It was a simple rule. Don't eat the fruit. A very simple rule. A lot of us walk around this world and say, I wouldn't have done that. I, w I would have followed that one simple rule. But here's the thing. None of us have an excuse for our own sin because we break God's simple rules all the time. Don't lie. Very simple. Don't covet and be jealous of what someone else has and you don't. Very simple. Don't steal even the little things. Very simple. And the one at the very top of the list that we always ignore. Don't put anything else in this life ahead of worshiping and living your life for me. Don't put fear don't put worldly gain, don't put laziness, don't put inconvenience, don't put selfishness ahead of me. Nothing. Don't put anything ahead of me. And yet, how many times a day do we break that one very simple rule? God knew our hopeless state, and he knew we could not pay the penalty of death for our own sin and have it amount to anything, more than us just paying what we owed for our sin. I know I've used this illustration before, but you don't go into the convenience store, put a pack of gum on the counter and say to the clerk, I'm going to pay for that before I walk out with it. A clerk will look at you and say, well, of course you are, or I'm calling the cops on you. Of course you have to pay for it before you leave the store. That's simply what you owe the store. When we die of physical death, we deserve to pay the penalty of the second death, or hell as well, because that's just what we simply owe for our sin. So God knew that someone who was perfect needed to take our place so that we could escape that. See, if we just paid that our own, nothing would amount to that. We're just paying what we owe. 
Somebody who was perfect needed to take our place to pay that price on our behalf. And since no mere human is perfect, who did that person have to be? God. So the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, came to earth as 100% God and 100% man to take our place and pay the penalty for both deaths. He did it on our behalf. When we recognize the gravity of the consequence for our sinfulness, and we recognize that our only hope for what awaits us when we die is Jesus dying and rising again for us, and ask God to forgive us of our sin based on Jesus paying our sin penalty on our behalf, God's word promises that he will, uh, he will forgive us and he will welcome us into his family. At that point, our eternal home is sealed for us, and we have 100% assurance we have that waiting for us. But again, it's all based on God's grace towards us. He didn't have to do any of that. But he did it, because just as his morality is perfect, and his justice towards us is perfect, his love towards us is perfect. But here's the thing. Can we just ask God to forgive us of our sins and then go on living the rest of our lives whatever way we want, no matter how much more of God's standards we knowingly break? No. Obviously, we'll ne we will never be perfect this side of heaven. But repentance means that we turn 180 degrees from how we were living in order to live the rest of our lives with the Holy Spirit's help to please God and to tell others about His grace so they can have it too. That's what repentance needs. So on that note, there are a few things going on in this parable that speak to multiple spiritual situations. If you're sitting here today or watching or listening online later, this parable, within its immediate context, could not be any clearer or more in your face about what it means. Jesus says elsewhere, in keeping with the same illustration of a tree, a good tree produces good fruit, and a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. So every tree that does not produce good fruit is chopped down and thrown into the fire. Yes, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, so you can identify people by their actions. Wow. Those just, they hit you right here, don't they? Those words hit you right here. If you asked Jesus to be your Savior when you were a kid, but you've walked away from it, or your life is not bearing or showing fruit in line with being a child of God, and pleasing him, guess what? You never really repented. You might argue, well, I was a kid. How much was there for me to repent of? Stealing some crayons from my next door neighbor? What was I supposed to repent of? Repentance is a lifelong way of life. Repentance is a lifelong way of life. We daily and continually turn 
from temptations and living the way we know God doesn't want us to live in order to please him as our good and perfect Heavenly Father. We think of it in, in, in family terms. We don't continue to live like a rebellious teenager the rest of our lives. That's not what God wants for us. Jesus' point at the end of this parable was, don't rest in your perceived inherent goodness. Don't take any assurance from that. Or for Jesus' contextual Jewish listeners, don't rest in your identity as one of God's chosen people or how well you think you follow the Jewish law. You each have to make a personal decision to repent. Turn 180 degrees from sin that only leads to death and destruction anyways and turn to God in love. To us today, that means don't rest in your perceived inherent goodness or what kind of prayer you prayed when you were a little kid or that you were baptized as an infant or confirmed in a certain church or that your family is generally Christian or that you went to church on Christmas Eve last year or that you haven't killed anybody in cold blood. Don't put any faith in any of that. Our only hope is God's grace towards us and the way through Jesus that he made for us to be reconciled to him. That is our only hope. It has nothing to do with us. Absolutely nothing other than the sin that we contribute to Jesus having to die on the cross in the first place. And if we prayed a prayer when we were a little kid, but we look at our life now and we don't see any fruit born for God, we need to take a hard look at our life and we need to have an honest conversation with God. If you are hard-pressed to see any spiritual change or growth, which would be that fruit in your life as you look at it, then you may have never actually repented and your eternal fate is questionable. Get that right with God today. Don't play around with that. It's literally playing around with fire. Don't play around with that. Get that right with God today, because as is also clear in this parable, there is an expiration date on God's grace. That expiration date is your physical death. You might say, okay, who cares? I still have time. None of us have any clue, again, when that will happen. And since Jesus was very clear that tragedy is an ever-present threat in this world, please stop playing around. Not to be morbid, but you could walk out these doors today and get hit by a car, and that's it. There's the expiration date. Talk to God right now and let him know you've realized that your life shows you never really repented, and you never turned 180 degrees from sin, and you never turned towards him. Ask him for forgiveness of your sin because of Jesus taking your place on the cross with the death penalty and commit the rest of your life to following him. Ask him to help you bear the fruit that shows you're his child. And like the benevolent groundskeeper, guess what? He will. His Holy Spirit will finally come 
It will finally indwell you. It will finally empower you to make the changes that need to be made and grow what's called the fruits of the Spirit in you. If you've never had this conversation with God and committed your life to Him because of Jesus' death and resurrection, do that right now for the exact same reasons. The Bible is very clear that your perception of your inherent morality will never, ever, ever be good enough to pay for your own sin penalty. It's absolutely impossible. Romans 3.23 says, For everyone is sinned, and we all fall short of God's glorious standard. You're not somehow different. You can no longer claim ignorance now because you just heard it. Claiming that's not fair is going to do just about, is going to be just about as effective as a child yelling that as, as a parent who just grounded them. You think that's going to change the punishment? No. None of us are without excuse. And all any of us have is God's grace. That's all we have. That's any hope we have. So, please repent and be forgiven before it's too late. And if you've had this conversation with God and you have committed your life to Him and you can see that spiritual fruit being grown in your life, be reminded of the power of God's grace in your life. Don't take God's grace upon you and your family for granted. Never do that. Again, we shouldn't be surprised when tragedy befalls us, but rather we should be surprised when God has grace upon us. So never take God's grace upon you and your family or any blessings that he's given to you for granted. Thank him for that each and every day. And when heartbreaking events happen in your life, recognize what grace comes right along with that. Because there's always grace that goes along with that. When a heartbreaking event happens in your life and tragedy befalls you, don't just focus on that tragedy. Don't just focus on that heartbreaking event. Also look for God's grace. Be on the lookout for it. Say, okay, this is heartbreaking. This is painful. I hate this. But I'm going to look for what grace of God there is in this because I know it's there. And you'll find it because there's always grace in whatever happens to us. When you lose a job, recognize God's continued provision for you and your family in the meantime. And look for how he's growing you through that experience. When a child goes wayward and away from God, recognize God's grace upon that child that they still have you to pray for them. And his grace maybe bringing them the long way around. When you lose a loved one, recognize God's grace attached to what you were given through that person in the time that you had with them. Recognize what to be thankful for in the time we got to have with that person and what that person meant to us and how they impacted us and how they, how they grew us. In each of these experiences, and in so many more tragic events, always remember that God's plan is perfect. 
There's always a purpose in whatever happens to us. There's always a purpose. And God's grace is what may reveal some of what that purpose is to us. Even though it may take years for that to be revealed. And even though it may not be until we go to be with Jesus in physical death that we finally understand. But it will still be God's grace that we understand anything. No matter, no matter what we go through, the most basic purpose in every trial we go through, so if you can't find any other purpose in what heartbreaking tragedy has befallen you, there's always this basic purpose in that. To strengthen our faith, to draw us closer to God, and he wants to reveal more of himself to us and to experience more of who he is. And none of that would have been possible if you did not go through what you went through. In everything in this life and in the next life, we must recognize just how much impact and influence God's grace has upon anything and everything we experience. Again, I mentioned this earlier in the service. The fact that we can be sitting here in this church in New Jersey is a gift that we should never take for granted. It's God's grace upon us. There are many churches across this country and across the world that cannot meet right now, either because of state restriction or because of outright persecution and threat of death even in places in the world. Never take for granted that you can be right here listening to the word of God being preached in the house of God, gathered together as the family of God. Never take that for granted. That's one very simple act of grace that God has had upon us even now, right this second. Recognize in your entire life, every day, that should be a practice that each and every one of us go through. From the moment you wake up, look for all the moments of God's grace in your life throughout that day and thank him immediately after each and every one of those acts of his grace throughout your day. And end your day going over all the moments of God's grace that he had in your life that day and thank him for those things. You know what that does? That completely shifts your mind to, to being uh, upset and obsessing about all the horrible things going on in this world and possibilities, not even things that are actually happening in your life right now, mere possibilities. It takes your focus off of that and focuses it squarely on God, his holiness, his perfect plan, and every amount of grace he has had upon you that day, and knowing that he will continue to have grace upon you. As Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, all of creation groans along with us. It's not just us that groan for God, for Jesus' return. All of creation groans for Jesus' return. It groans for God's full redemption of us in this entire world someday. We should always recognize that we will suffer in this world. Again, that should not be surprising. We will suffer in this world. That's how this cursed world works for now. But in and through everything, God still has a plan. He still has a purpose. 
and God's grace is right alongside of us as we walk through every experience with him. And that's one of the greatest and most peace-giving promises God gives to us, that he's right there with us. God's presence will always be with us through every experience we go through, whether joyful or tormenting. Similar to last week, I want to close our time with these promises. Don't close your Bible yet. I want to close our time with these promises. Jesus' very last words to his first century disciples that extend to us as his 21st century disciples are these. His very last words. Be sure of this. I am with you always. Even to the end of the age. Isaiah 41.10 tells us, fear not. Doesn't matter what the situation is. Doesn't matter what pandemic or economic turmoil we're going through or political turmoil. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And the Holy Spirit through Paul promises us, so you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Brothers and sisters, I'm going to be candid with you. Everyone else in this world is walking around in fear because of this pandemic. What should we not be walking around in? in? Fear. That is, one of the one th that is one of the things we should not be walking around this world with. We should have no fear. Because who do we have? We have God. Who took our place on the cross? Who is indwelling you right now? Who will never leave you or forsake you? Who will always provide for you? And who will always be with you through every step, through everything in this life? So we have not received a spirit that makes us fearful. Only slaves making every decision based on that fear and only that fear. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba, Father, for his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, guess what? We are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. And here's where it connects with what Jesus was talking about at the beginning of chapter 13. But if we are to share his glory, we must also share his suffering. That should not be surprising. And then Paul ends this passage with, Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Tell me. No. Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or we go hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? No! <laughs> no! Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. I am convinced that Eh, little things here and there. No, nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, anything going on in this life, 
Nothing can separate you from God's love. Neither angels nor demons. Any spiritual warfare you're going through right now, that will never separate you from God's love. In fact, his love will be poured out on you even more in that spiritual warfare. Neither are fears for today, nor are worries about tomorrow. Don't let that make you decide what you decide in this life. Don't let fear or worry be your deciding factor. Always make the leading of the Holy Spirit your deciding factor. Not even the powers of hell, family. Not even all the powers in the kingdom of darkness. Nothing can separate us from God's love. Amen? Revel and be thankful for every ounce of grace God has upon you both now and for eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the many promises it gives to us. We thank you that it gives us life. We thank you that it gives us hope. We thank you that it gives us peace. Nothing will separate us from your love. So Lord, I pray that if there's anything that we're putting ahead of you, that, that, that we get that right with you. I pray that if we look at our life and we don't see really much or any fruit being born, I pray that we would get that right with you, that we would truly repent and become children of God. Lord, I pray that if we've never had that conversation with you, we've never come to that place where we say, I'm a sinner, and I know my sin separates me from you. I know that you dying on the cross and raising back to life is my only hope. You paid the death penalty for my sin on my behalf. I accept that. I recognize that. Please forgive me of my sin. I repent of, of my sin, and I turn and I live my life for you. We've never had that conversation with you. I pray that we do that right now, because there is an expiration date. We have no clue when that's going to be. Lord, we thank you for every amount of your grace that you have upon us. We thank you for any amount of protection you have on us, for any amount of blessing you have on us. We thank you for being our good and perfect Heavenly Father. You have a plan for us that plan is perfect, and make us, force us, let us rest in the peace of knowing that truth. Let us turn to you for our peace. Let us find our assurance and rest in you. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.